there is um, a moment that for me captures my trip uh, to Africa in the last two weeks. And I don't know that I really have the words to communicate that moment, um, but for me it, it summarizes and it captures um, my time in Africa. Uh, and it's a moment um, sealed in my mind that I am reminded of when we go to the edge with the gospel, how God shows up. Um, this, this last trip, I spoke on love. I know I may not be the prime candidate to speak on love, but anyhow, <clears throat> that was my task this trip. And so I crafted three stories that I would share at night as we sat around and drank tea in our villages. And um, in Africa, you have to put it in story form. So it's not just I'm teaching principles on love, I'm teaching a story. And so what I did is I took the Apostle John because so, many, so much about love is related to him. And his experience with Jesus, and I crafted these three stories from the Gospels and then beyond that into First uh, John particularly, and talked about John's experience with Jesus and love and how he saw Jesus' love in practical ways and the things that Jesus taught about love. And then here it was. The second story went into the ultimate expression of Jesus' love, which was the cross. And that the very, the most significant need we have in our life is our separation from God because of our sin. And Jesus addressed that out of love on the cross. And so, as we sit around and we drink tea and we talk in the darkness, um, we talked about these things and uh, there's discussion and this goes on for generally two hours or so at night. We may start about nine and finish about 11 or midnight and sometime depending on what the discussion is. And, um, but I had the sense this trip that I had to keep, uh, and it's the phrase pressing the gospel that Sometimes there's different discussion points that are going on, but you kind of, you keep coming back to the message. And yes, it's about love and it's about John, but it's ultimately about Jesus loving you enough to die for your sins on the cross. And uh, there were verses of scripture that I worked into John's stories that Jesus had said in the upper room in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. I was able to work in John 3.16. I just got tickled just sitting there in those African <laughs> villages with the, the I, mean, I guess, the greatest verse in all the Bible. And, you know, I'm thinking they've never heard this before in their life. And there's no reason to tell them this is the greatest verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. But my second story, I would end with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and, and 
yes, there was parts of the story that talked about Jesus' command to love one another, and I ended up kind of with a story with John as an old man, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the things he wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and 4, and one of those things uh, I would say each night in that third story, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And so I, I, I'm struck by the one moment every night as I storied and as, as it came down and there was discussion always about sin and why Jesus died and his death on the cross. And I'm just going to say this, that every night it would come down uh, it, it was moving to this point, this moment in which, yes, there was some explanation, but this was it. What will you do? Who in this circle tonight will choose to follow Jesus, the one who loved you enough to die for you? Who? Who is willing? And there would, yes, there was explanation that and in order for you to do that, you must, with your mouth, you must admit to God that you are a sinner. You must tell God that you believe that Jesus died for your sins. You must, with your mouth, say, Jesus, I want you to take away my sins, and you must commit your life to him. Yes, there was some explanation, but there came a point every evening in this moment. And it's hard to describe without being there, the heightened spiritual dynamic of that moment. And every night at this point, there was a pause. To see who. Who would say yes? I will do that. I was amazed in that moment to see those uh, who, in the darkness, despite other people's responses, would say, Yes, I will choose. And, and quite honestly, there were only I'm thinking five nights. There's a story about the fourth and fifth night. I'll, I'll save it for the Africa team meetings. But the first two nights, two people, two people, two people, the first three nights. Uh, you kind of have to understand that uh, the other thing that happens, there's this, there's this spiritual dynamic that's going on as the evening goes on and it begins. We just keep going back to the cross and what Jesus did. And um, it, it's interesting just to sit back and watch and how God works. And I, I don't understand all that, but what will happen invariably as the evening goes on, there will be some people in the midst as they sense that coming, they will get up from the story and they will walk away. And they've, they've made their choice. That there was a sense there and they knew in their hearts, 
It's not a choice I'm going to make. And there will be people. There's always some coming and going, but you can sense in that moment that people sense the spiritual dynamic that's going on and they will literally get up. I'll be honest with you, there's other people as then we, we say, then you need to profess that in prayer out loud. The other thing, and this is really strange, there will be people in that, that, that circle that will begin to laugh. Wow. I, and you know, Daryl Smith's sort of like this, I'll, I'll laugh at wrong times, you know, or when you feel uncomfortable or something, you will laugh. And, and it's sort of it's that, but some of it it's like, wow. There are people in the story that are making legitimate decisions and they will continue to pray regardless whether people laugh for whatever reason or not. But there is something to come to that moment and I'll be honest with you, I don't, I, I think of each of those three nights and very different stories and scenarios and I don't have time to talk about them this morning of those people and sometimes those people were the least likely candidates. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the people in the circle, it's you and you <laughs> that are going to say yes. And I, I don't understand the mystery in the drawing of God and, and why that is. And I, and I don't know. Quite honestly, some of those nights I went, this is, there is going to be no response tonight. This is, I, I think of one particular night, I'm just thinking, oh my. There have been so many distractions that there is, there's going to be no one tonight and then there were people that would be willing in the midst of all that to say yes. Regardless of what anybody else chose or didn't choose, whether they laughed, whether they walked away, there were some that God had opened up their eyes and touched their hearts, and they were willing to profess. And so for me, quite honestly, all of those times and all of those conversations and all those stories and all the time we spent really comes down to just that moment to see as the gospel has been has been pressed to the edge will God draw people to himself and I was amazed to watch and see how God would show up um, I continue to be encouraged with uh, our work among the people. Um, and I'm encouraged at the, prog the progress that continues to be made and the people that are choosing to follow and um, the people that, uh, I'll, I'll tell Tasha and Stacy, but uh, that would say, no, I can't make that decision now because I made that the last time. <laughs> I've already made that decision. Um, and they'll kind of say it like that too. Um, but continue to be encouraged by the progress that is made. And um, obviously it's slower than I would want at times. But I, I think I'm reminded, Just if I just summarized it, I am reminded of the, um, of the faithfulness of God 
when we faithfully press the gospel to the edge and to the end to see how God continues to do his work and draw people out whether it makes any sense uh, or not and so it's that it's that moment and I, I, I was thinking about that that moment really it's the moment of decision and uh, I have a story I don't I know I have refrained from telling grandchildren stories but uh, man for me to even open up this can of worms is just but before I left for Africa um, Hudson Andrew Smith was at my house playing we were in the backyard and uh, his nan had bought him these little trucks that uh, have interchangeable parts and this truck can be it can be a bulldozer it has different attachments guys I mean I'll be honest sometimes I play with them when the kids aren't there uh, yeah it's, it can be like a bulldozer it can be kind of like a um, um, what do you like a track hole it's got that attachment but Hudson that day he wanted the steamroller on there I mean that says a lot about a young man I just want to roll over some things so we went in the backyard and he was playing in the dirt and I was just kind of sitting on the deck just kind of watching and uh, in a moment as will happen with a two and a half year old little boy he has an idea so he takes his his little steamroller and he goes up the steps I have this this little playscape that I've created in my backyard I mean some people say it is the envy of all grandfathers <laughs> in Huntington Texas but regardless of how great my playscape is that's not the point of the story Hudson goes up with his little steamroller up the steps to get on the platform and there's a slide there and uh, I know the way his brains working what's Hudson gonna do oh he wants to see what will happen when the steamroller goes down the slide so he gets to the edge of the slide and boom, there goes the steamroller and as I watch and I don't know that Hudson really saw this the the steamroller part came off when it hit the ground and so if you're two and a half year old boy once you've sent the steamroller down you come with it I mean you're going next on the slide and uh, so I'm just sitting here watching this a little bit from a distance and uh, he gets to the bottom of the slide and he looks down and there's this little moment in there the steamroller is in two parts it's broken and I don't know why I sat and I watched I didn't say anything to him but in that split second I wonder what is his response gonna be and Hudson picks up the steamroller, the two parts, and his immediate response was to turn and to run towards me, saying, Papa D, fix it. Papa D, fix it. Papa D, fix it. And I did. Hope that was that's good. You know, if your kid brings you something, it's good that you're able to fix it. And um, I don't know why I sat there and I thought about that, and I thought, what is our response when we encounter the brokenness in our lives and in our world? Do we have the childlike response that would just say, who is it that can fix this? You know, mom or dad or nan or papa D, whoever that is. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? What is our initial response to the brokenness in our world? And is our response to say, God, I need you to fix this. In fact, you are the only one who is able to fix that. And is that our immediate response? Or do we look for other things? Maybe we say in ourselves, and I I was kind of intrigued. I thought Hudson maybe would try to fix it himself. But that was not his response. I think in his little heart, he knew I could fix it. I don't know that he was sure he could fix it. And I thought, is that our response? Do, is it sometimes that we, we look to ourselves and say, well, I'll, I'll try to put this back together? Or do we look to somebody else other than God in the brokenness of our world to say, do we look to something else to try to fix the brokenness in our world? And I don't know why for me it was just, it was those little moments What was Hudson's immediate response going to be? And it was, Papa D, fix it and to bring it to me. I I tie that into the Africa experience because really as we told stories, it comes down to the end and the reality of you are broken because of your sin. And I have told you that Jesus died for that and is willing to fix that, what will you do? Will you try to fix your own life? Will you look to some other thing or some other person to try to fix your life? Or will you look to God? And so as we um, think about those things this morning, we are confronted with the reality that we live in a broken world. And the question is, what will we turn to? The 8th century prophets confronted God's people with their sin, their brokenness. At the time period, and we're looking this year at one big story, and we found our way partway, maybe most of the way through the Old Testament to the the 8th century, and there's been the great King David and his son Solomon, but after Solomon, then the, the 12 tribes divide into two kingdoms, the north and the south, and it's not just that the kingdom divided, it was that what is exposed in their spiritual lives is that their loyalty had been divided, and so God begins to send prophets to be his spokesman, to bring them messages, to expose their brokenness, their sin, and that they're separated from God, and ultimately his judgment because of their sin. And in the ninth century after the divided kingdom, you see the great prophets Elijah and Elisha. And then in the eighth century, you have this whole cluster of prophets. In fact, if you have your reference sheet, you can see that. And I would encourage you to take this because we're going to talk about this And this will help you with what I say here in just a moment. They they ought to be at the ends of your pews if you want to take one of those. Um, The 8th century prophets confronted God's people with their sin, their brokenness before him. And Byron introduced and started um, talking about Isaiah because of the 8th century prophets, Isaiah is the quote-unquote major prophet. 
Yes, there is Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, and Micah. And I know if you're thinking through your, your, the minor prophets, in your, there's some that we've left out there, and I'll have to pick them up at a later time. Uh, but for now, we see, we know that these prophets are the 8th century. But, but the greatest of those is Isaiah. In fact, of the major prophets uh, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, uh, Isaiah is first in the biblical order, and partly that is because of the chronology, but partly just the greatness of who Isaiah is. And in his book, and I know it's 66 chapters, and I don't know, Brother Barry, if you've read all 66 chapters last week or this week. I don't know. I'm not put, calling you out or anything. It's a lot to read, but phenomenal verses and the things that Isaiah says. In fact, many people associate him, they call him the, the, the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament. There's so much of the gospel in Isaiah. But as I thought about Isaiah this week, uh, well, let's just be honest, the end of the week, <laughs> I got in Thursday night. Uh, well, I, no, quite honestly, I started this. I started reading when I was on my trip home, coming from Africa, and read this to pick up themes. And I picked up on these three themes that, that interlace and run through the book of Isaiah, and it struck me later that the first of those themes is the theme of sin. And I'm kind of, I haven't listened to Byron's sermon, but I think that's what he was supposed to talk about. And I said, listen, you need to you need to get all these the sinners back in line with God next Sunday. That's your assignment. I'm going to Africa, preach on sin, get everybody right. I'm going to come up, mop up, and talk about hope and salvation and all of that. I don't know. I don't know. But anyhow, sin. And it all hinges, and it, it really starts in the first verses of Isaiah 1. And he talks about the Holy One of Israel. That's his name for God. And, and what he is saying is that he is reminding the people as their hearts are divided and they've fallen into sin that God is a holy God and their lives did not measure up to the standards of a holy God as his people. And so all through the book of Isaiah there is this theme interlaced of the sin of God's people and it comes from God's name, the Holy One of Israel. But also, if you begin to read from the early chapters of Isaiah, there's another theme. And it is the theme of the Messiah who would come. It's amazing. There is more in Isaiah about the Messiah than any other book except the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And Psalms comes from David and there is it starts with the time of David that there is one who is coming that's the son of David that will be the king Above all kings, he's out there. He's coming. He's going to be greater. He will sit on the throne forever. And Isaiah begins to talk about this child. And, and apparently it is in response to their sin that God's, there's going to be a child born of a virgin. And it talks about how the Spirit of God will be upon him. And that God will uh, use this one who is sent to be a blessing of the whole earth. As I wrote on your sheet, you can see those three 
themes of the sin and the Messiah that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, from, the, from David. And you can, I, I put those references because as the p- book progresses, the mess- messianic figure, the one who is God who's going to send in response to their sin and the brokenness, God's going to rescind this person in the midst of their brokenness. He's going to be the king that sits on the throne forever. Um, he will come from the line of David and uh, God will use him. And so there, there is the theme of sin that starts in the book of Isaiah that runs throughout. And then there is the Messiah who becomes, this is what I was about to say, becomes known as my servant in those later references. But in the midst of that, as the book progresses, there is another theme, and it is the theme of salvation, which ties into Isaiah's name because Isaiah in the Hebrew means Yahweh is salvation. And so at the very heart of what Isaiah is about, it is about salvation. And here is what God says, that only he only God can be their Savior. Um, <coughs> in Isaiah 43, 11, this is a statement just to represent many other statements and the references are there, but 43, 11, God says, And I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Israel, wherever you're looking, to yourself or to Egypt or to anything else. For your salvation, you're not going to find it. Only the Lord is the one who saves. Don't look to anything else. The point being, only God will fix the brokenness. But the crazy thing, the crazy thing, in the midst of their brokenness, by their own choice, God says, I will save by my own arm. You need to read those references. God basically says, I will do it. God says, I will fix it. God's not going to give them a solution. God says, no, I'm going to fix it. I didn't create the problem. I am the holy God. I could just leave you in judgment, but I am a God of salvation. Understand today, if nothing else, only God saves you cannot save yourself there is no other source there is no other way look to nothing else that may be the greatest message to the book of Isaiah and then what I discover in the midst of the themes of sin and the Messiah and salvation we come to Isaiah 53. All of those themes of sin, the Messiah, and salvation converge in this climax in Isaiah 53 that God gives the ultimate solution for the brokenness in our world 
And he describes it. And really what I want to do is I just want to read it this morning. And I'm sorry, I'm going to make a few comments at the end. But understand, and, and really there's more here than I have time to cover, and it's, it's a number of verses, and I'm not going to get into all the, the fulfillment of the prophecy here. You can go back and study that. But it is the culmination of the themes of sin and the Messiah and salvation. And I'll tell you quite honestly, it's kind of like a shocking message. It's like, I didn't see that coming. Now, I understand we see it from where we live today. But if you'd lived in Isaiah's day to say, this is God's solution to the brokenness because of sin in your world, But I want you to notice as I read that what God says is the ultimate solution is that Messiah will suffer, will give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. That is God's solution to the sin problem and brokenness in our world. In Isaiah, actually in 52, verse 13, and I, I just want to read it and fairly slowly so that you can understand the culmination here of what God is saying. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled to be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men so shall he sprinkle many nations kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has bore our, so our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The great prophet Isaiah said that is God's solution to our sin problem. That he would send his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. It's amazing to see the words for suffering in these verses it goes on and on and on and on despised rejected sorrows grief stricken smitten afflicted wounded bruised chast chastisement stripes oppressed and some of those are used multiple times. It's just like you just keep saying it. He's going to suffer. The messianic figure, the great king, will die. But here's the thing. It's not just about the suffering. It's about the substitution. It's not that he's dying for his own sin. He's dying for their sin. And you understand this side of the cross, he's dying for our sins. And it's amazing how many times he says that. He talks about the substitution, that he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was the sacrifice, not for himself, but for our sins. If there was one verse I could just set before you and leave with you, it would be verse 6. To me, it kind of summarizes it all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was a moment every year on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would take what was called the scapegoat. And the high priest on the Day of Atonement would take his hands and he would put his hands on the head of that goat. It was a symbolic way of bestowing the sin of God's people on that goat that took on the sins of God's people. The same picture is here, that on that day, God said, I will put my hands and I will lay the sins of my people on this person who will be a sacrifice. Seven hundred years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah tells us that God's solution for our sin problem was that his son would be the sacrifice for our sins. There is no other way that we can be saved because as I wrote on your sheet, Jesus' death is sufficient for all sin, for all people, for all time. Now this morning, those are uh, a little bit different words than I shared in the last week or so in Africa. But every night, as the gospel was pressed and the conversation narrowed to the cross, sin came up and we had to talk about it, that he died for our sins. Hmm. And that moment that I talked about came and I can remember some of those nights just Daryl Smith's tendency if there's silence I feel like I need to say something of just being quiet and waiting as those people were confronted by their sin, their brokenness and then on the other hand, God's solution that his son died for those sins. And that moment with the question, so what will you do? What will you do? Because all we like sheep have gone astray.
Every man has gone his own, gone, gone his own way. But the Lord has taken your sin and laid it on his son on the cross to pay for your sin. If only you will turn to him with the brokenness of your life and say, God, I need you to fix it. I realize actually it's true in Africa too because many of those people that are in that circle had already made that decision some of them wanted to make sure that I knew that <laughs> that night I've already done that And I realize, First Baptist Church, Huntington, Texas, I'd have to guess most of you. At some point in your life, when you were confronted by your brokenness because of your sin, as the gospel message was pressed upon your heart, that you chose to ask Jesus to take away your sin. but I don't know that all of you have. This morning I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Jesus' death on the cross is God's only solution to your sin problem and my sin problem. But there has to come a step where you choose him and with your mouth you admit that you are a sinner that you tell him that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that with your mouth you say Jesus would you take away my sins come into my life and I commit my life to you and I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning brother Shane's gonna come and we're gonna stand uh, Byron and I are gonna be at the front um, I, I, I cannot imagine it takes any more courage for you this morning to make this decision than it does for some of those people who live in a, in a Muslim population world that they do not know what it will cost them to follow Jesus. Who some of their friends would laugh as they prayed. Some of their friends would walk away. But some of those people didn't care and they were willing to profess Christ. And I, I ask you to do the same this morning. And so, Father, today we pray uh, in this time uh, that, Father, you would open the hearts as you choose today. You would give courage to those who need to profess you. And, Father, I pray... <laughs> that eternity would be changed in these moments. And we pray it in Jesus' name. If you would come.